0: This is the Therapy in a Nutshell podcast. I'm Emma McAdam, a licensed marriage and family therapist. These episodes are filled with research-backed therapeutic education that you can start applying in your life today. I hope you find today's episode beneficial, and if you know of someone who could benefit from this podcast, please don't hesitate to share it. Let's work together and share tools everyone can use to help deal with the difficult mental health struggles they're going through. Each podcast episode comes from a corresponding video. You can find them on the Therapy in a Nutshell YouTube channel. Also, these podcasts are educational and don't replace the advice or direction you may be receiving from a therapist or other health professionals. Please enjoy the episode. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Lindsay Tubah. She's a doctor of audiology and a pediatric audiologist. She specializes in sound sensitivities, which include things like hyperacusis, misophonia, and phonophobia. So a lot of times sound sensitivities overlap with disorders like anxiety, OCD, and other mental health conditions. I recently got an email from a follower asking about sound sensitivities. This person explained to me how noises outside of his house were just driving him crazy and making him so anxious. So that started me down a long pathway of trying to learn all that I could about sound sensitivities. Now, you may have seen my video on YouTube about sound sensitivities, but this is the full length interview I had with Dr. Lindsay Tuba. She's a doctor of audiology. She's a pediatric audiologist, and she specializes in sound sensitivities, including hyperacusis, misophonia, and phonophobia. If you'd like to learn more about her or take her courses, you can find her at littleheroeshearingclinic.com. Okay, let's hear what she has to say. Go ahead and tell us all about your sound immunity program. Oh, great. Thank you. So,
1: yeah, I when we started this clinic, I knew that my specialty was gonna be sound sensitivities. It's what I'm most passionate about. And it's really an area that there's not a lot of people that specialize in it, or not a lot of people professionals that people can turn to for help. And so when I started my clinic and I started seeing people in person, I got so many calls from really all over the world, not just the United States, but all over the world saying, hey, we need somebody for our daughter. You know, I need somebody for myself. I'm, my life is, I'm really struggling with my life, my social skills. I can't go out to eat, you know, a lot of different, a lot of different scenarios that I work with every day in the clinic, but people from around the world that didn't know where to go. And so I decided to create a coaching program utilizing the same, techniques that I can utilize in my clinic. I can't do any diagnostic testing through the sound immunity program, but I offer coaching thera- therapeutic techniques through my coaching program, the sound immunity program, which can be done either one-on-one with me virtually, or it can. It, there's a program if, for people who want to an online program for people who want to kind of go at their own pace and not try to match up schedules and time zones and all of that and then they have access to all of the information forever especially with one of the categories of sound sensitivities misophonia there is a chance of having sort of a relapse so even after Mm -hmm. you've gotten therapy there can be something that happens that causes you to relapse. So having access to those modules can be really helpful to kind of, you've already gone through it. So, so going through it again, typically doesn't take as long to get that reflex to, to go away or, you know, make new reflexes that are, or condition responses that are much better. Yeah. Yeah. That's, so that's, that's the sound immunity program. That's why mm-hmm. I created it. Yeah. And I love it. Yeah.
0: I think your program is really cool. And one of the reasons I found you is because I got an email from a follower and he's like, Hey, Emma, I've got terrible anxiety. I was in this apartment and the people just made noise and made noise and made noise and it made me so anxious. I have so much anxiety. So I moved out into the middle of nowhere and things were better for a while and then someone had a leaf blower and now it drives me crazy that like down the street, someone has a leaf blower. And now I'm noticing that there's airplanes overhead and now I can't even feel safe in my own home. And as I, as I read this email, I'm like, okay, this is most likely not a most likely I can't diagnose over an email, obviously, but I'm like, this is most likely either not an anxiety disorder or an anxiety disorder combined with a sound sensitivity. Right. And I also knew that I know almost nothing about sound sensitivities. So then I started researching and then I found you and I, I thought, okay, so what would be, what like if you were to get an email like that or have someone bring in a question like that, what kind of direction would you start pointing them? Like where would you
1: yeah. have them start looking? Yeah, well, for, yeah, first of all, I think it's important to understand that when you're talking about sound sensitivities, There are four categories of sound sensitivities, and you can have one or more of the sound sensitivities. One is what audiologists call pain hyperacusis, and that's where you hear a sound and you get a physical pain in your ear. So there have been a lot of times when I've asked patients, do you get pain when you hear a specific sound? And sometimes they'll be like, well, my whole body hurts. That's not what this is. Pain hyperacusis is is literally as awful as the sound. It is like feeling a a pencil being stuck into your ear. Okay. So like a, Mm -hmm. a really sharp stabbing pain. And that is... That's pain hyperacusis. So that's one of the the forms of hyperacusis or sound sensitivity. So hyperacusis is like a hypersensitivity to sound. Typically with pain hyperacusis, it has some sort of medical underlying physiological thing going on. And there's not a lot of treatments yet for pain hyperacusis unless there's a surgical option that we always look into. So Mm -hmm. there's a lot of research going on into that. But the three that I specialize in more frequently is fear hyperacusis, which is also called phonophobia. Mm -hmm. So this is when there are sounds that a a person is anxious about. So it doesn't even mean that necessarily when they hear the sound, they get the fear response. It can be just knowing that they might hear the sound they get Mm -hmm. that fight or flight response. Um, So a lot of my patients have this phonophobia. A lot of times they don't realize that they have it. And sometimes it kind of is masked by the other two that I'm going to talk about. The next one is the one that I love working with the most because this is the one that really is the most detrimental to people as far as living their life, you know, going out with their family or going going places, even to school or to work. And that is annoyance hyperacusis, which is also known as misophonia. Mm -hmm. So that one is one of the categories of sound sensitivities. And that one is what I get contacted for the most because Mm -hmm. the people who have misophonia typically have more than one trigger And it sets off the fight or flight response in the brain. And so a lot of times it is coexisting with an anxiety disorder or some other mood disorder or depression, but it doesn't have to be. I've seen patients who there's no other coexisting condition. It's also very common in those on the autism spectrum, those with ADHD it's not a guaranteed thing, but it is very common in that in that population. And so I see a lot of those children and adults.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then the final one is loudness hyperacusis. And that's where the loudness of sounds to, to someone else, it's fine. But for someone who has loudness hyperacusis, things are just really loud they they reach that limit of loud like what they can cope with as far as loudness much faster than than maybe the person sitting next to them or their family member and so that can be very that that can really affect your life a lot and i've seen some people in my clinic who the hyper the loudness hyperacusis is so severe that even just setting a pencil down on the counter makes them makes them jump mm-hmm. but it's important to understand too that with all of these four categories you could have all of them or you could just have one of them and sometimes you think you have one of them and then you treat that one and realize that there is an underlying one that then you need to treat so for example i had a patient come in who had what appeared to be pure misophonia. He had one trigger. We we believed that it was due to when he was younger. He was he was only ten when I treated him. but his trigger was mouth noises, which is a very mm-hmm. common trigger, so like people chewing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: He he really had a hard time with that, and so we we went through the treatment protocol, and we can talk about that a little bit later. What a treatment protocol looks like. But we yeah. went through the treatment protocol, and he was able to overcome, he was able to eat with his family, he was able to to go places that he couldn't before. But what we found is that he had phonophobia. So despite the fact that he could handle the sounds when he was in the situation, he still had a very, very much so a fear response knowing that he might be exposed to them, even though he knew he could cope with it and and that he was okay. And so then we moved on to work with the phonophobia. So all of them can be worked with, all of the different types. Typically, if somebody has... So this is usually the order that we go in. So if somebody had all of the different types, we would typically treat the loudness hyperacusis first, Mm -hmm. and then we would treat the misophonia and then we would treat the phonophobia. Hmm. Uh, of course you can always you can never say things are always that way, right? right? So a lot of times when people have a lot of different things we really focus on what's affecting your life life the most right now? What is the most detrimental to your life right now because sometimes these are so severe that uh, you know it can cause a lot of thoughts of self-harm. It can cause a lot of emotional distress and and it's really important to talk about that with mm-hmm. these patients because especially if they've been dealing with it for a long time and they're continually being exposed to these sounds they're strengthening the the reflex it's an actual reflex in the brain instead of, you know, deconditioning it so to speak
0: yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for clarifying that, and that's that's interesting to learn about those those other categories. And I had not heard previously of pain hyperacusis, and so that's when you feel physical, like ouchy, in your ear, inside of your ear, not like your body is like reacting, but yeah, you're physically exactly. Hurts.
1: And that, and that, I think exactly that I think is is a very common mis, misconception when. When I'll ask my coaching clients, either virtually or I'll talk to my patients in the office, I'll say, "Okay, do, when you hear these sounds, does it hurt?" You know, right. and and a lot of times, and that's such a global question. I ask that on purpose because yeah. so many times, especially with misophonia, there is a physical pain or a physical clenching in the body somewhere in the stomach or in the throat or in the feet and it can be mm-hmm. anywhere. Yeah. Um, and so I'll ask that when you hear the sound, do you get a pain somewhere? And, and they and if they say yes, I'll say, okay, where? And so if they say it feels like a stabbing pain, a stabbing shooting pain in my ear, then that leads me in a different direction than if they say, well, my stomach, you know, I get sick to my stomach or my stomach clenches, you know, but. A lot of times it's also the the emotions that go along with it that, that makes, kind of determine which story they, they fall in as well.
0: Oh, yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense to me because like when I hear my, my baby cry and I'm, I'm not able, for example, like if we're in the car and I'm not able to pick her up, I hear my baby cry and it's not that my ears are physically hurting usually. That's my three-year-old sometimes it makes my ears actually hurt. But if I hear my baby cry <laughs> yeah. and and I, and I can't pick her up, then it hurts but it's not my ears that are hurting it's like my stomach chest right. area that exactly. are like oh I just want to pick her up yep. you know yep. um and that's yeah. not I would exactly. not consider that to be like a hyper acuity I would just consider that to be like being a mom <laughs>
1: Right. Right. Yeah. They're just, and honestly, a lot of the sounds that I tell this to those that I work with all the time, the sounds that people typically see me for like sniffling or mm-hmm. mouth noises or jets or it, whatever it is, the goal of any type of treatment for a sound sensitivity isn't get, isn't to get you to love that sound, like listening to a baby cry, Right. Is, is typically not going to be a sound that you love, but the opposite of hate is not love. It's indifference. And so what we're trying to do, there are all, there are all, there are sounds that all of us, well, most people don't like, like the nails on the chalkboard and ew, like you, you feel that if you even think about that. Yeah. Um, and that's not necessarily misophonia, unless you are a person that you hate it so much that you want to stand up and, and, scream or punch somebody in the face even if Mm -hmm. and most people hold it back they don't they don't punch somebody in the face but inside they're just boiling with with rage and really can't get out of that response until the stimulus is gone
0: yeah yeah Okay. That's helpful to, to clarify. And and so just to summarize, so there's there's pain hyperacuity, and then there is phonophobia, which is when you have a fear or anxiety reaction to a sound. Misophonia, which is when you have usually like an anger or fight, flight, freeze response, but usually kind of an anger, irritation, annoyance response to a sound. And there is loudness hyperacuity, which is again, kind of that that fight, flight, freeze response, but it's, it's not anger so much as just like, this is really really uncomfortable, like extremely uncomfortable to, to hear loud noises. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Yep, that's exactly right. And the, the flight, fight, freeze response, we see that a lot with any of these categories, but mm-hmm. especially with the the loudness hyperacusis, the phonophobia, and the misophonia, we really see this kind of fight, flight, freeze response. Mm-hmm. With the with with misophonia, it's typically a fight response. Like in our body, we're, we're like ready to fight. But in little kids, a lot of times it is kind of this run to mom or dad and just kind of, you know, hug them really tight, try to feel safe in whatever way they can. Or especially in the population of people who are on the spectrum, a lot of times we'll kind of see this covering mm-hmm. the ears and rocking or, you know, yeah. and that, and again, that can be both phonophobia and it can be misophonia and it can be hyperacusis, the, the, the mm-hmm. loudness hyperacusis all together. And yeah. so it, it really is not always super clear cut because mm-hmm. there can be, there could be a lot of different things going on, but anxiety tends to present Whether it's kind of a chicken and egg type conversation, did the anxiety come first or did the sound sensitivity cause anxiety? And it and it probably goes both ways. Yeah. In all in all honesty. It probably goes both ways.
0: Yeah. So this is a terrible question because my guess is that we aren't able to do a differential diagnosis with people, like, oh, how much of this is a physiological sensitivity. How much of this is biology? Or how much of this is, you know, genetics? Or something going on physically? And how much of this is something going on psychologically? Because our sensations, like how we interpret our senses, is directly connected to how we interpret them and our brain tolerance, which would be considered more of a psychological concept. So can, can you answer that question better than I can? Like, how do we tell, like, what's going on well, physically sort of. and what's going on psychologically?
1: <laughs> it's a great question. And there's no gold standard right now for any type of differential diagnosis in these cases. But however, I will say there is a ton of research happening right now and a lot of stuff coming out right now, specifically about misophonia in both the psychology world and audiology world, but it does take kind of a team approach and looking at things from a lot of different lenses, because Mm -hmm. when you have a response to sound, other than pain hyperacusis, although it can happen with that as well, but when you look at the, the structures in the brain that are involved you, you know, the sound goes through the ears, but we don't hear in our ears, we hear in our brains. And so right. it goes to the auditory process centers of the brain. But in people who have these sound sensitivities and have had, you know, imaging done, they've seen it in a lot of the emotional centers of the brain as well. And so it's a condition that I think is something that a lot of Professionals think that they should be the specialist of, or a lot of professionals think that they shouldn't, <laughs> because yeah. because it really does. Blend. so, I've had occupational therapists come up to me and say, "Hey, i I have this child or an adult that was referred to me, and I have no idea what to do for this." Um, ABA therapists come up mm-hmm. to me. I've had I've done talks for psychotherapists who are like, "What." what do we do? Like, what is the best way to tackle this? And yeah. really, it in order to treat it, you have to tackle both. You mm-hmm. have to tackle the physiological thing going on inside the brain. And, and you also have to tackle the um, neuropsychological thing. But you <laughs> have to tackle both. It, mm-hmm. For a truly comprehensive treatment program, yeah. you need to have something that's lessening this conditioned reflex that has been conditioned in the brain that has gotten stronger over time. That is one thing that they found with sound sensitivities is that unlike tinnitus or ringing in the ears that typically naturally gets better over time. Mm. Sound sensitivities don't, they they have found that they don't naturally get better over time. Mm. um, And often they will continue to get worse because Mm. you have this conditioned response and you're strengthening that conditioned response unless you have started to you know do some cognitive behavioral therapy on your own or some sort of sound therapy treatment on your own then you know maybe you've been able to kind of overcome some of the negative reactions to sounds
0: yeah. So let me, let me see if I can clarify this and you tell me where I'm, I'm misunderstanding. So there's stuff going on biologically, which we can work with from a physical level, but there's also stuff going on psychologically, which is this conditioned reflex. And when you talk about a conditioned reflex for anyone who's familiar with psychology, this is Pavlov's dogs, right? Like these dogs, he trained, yep. he, he yep. would bring them food and they would start to salivate before the food got there. So then he paired bringing them food with a bell And they would salivate. And then he took away the food and he only rang the bell and they would still salivate. And that's that salivation is an autonomic nervous system response. It's where your nervous system reacts without you thinking, oh, now I'm going to turn on my saliva. Right. So there's this this conditioned response. And so now every time these dogs heard a bell ring, they would salivate because they paired that association with fear. Food And that triggered that nervous system, you know, the, the, uh, the digestive response to even yeah. get started ahead of time. So with sound sensitivities, what you're saying is these sounds are triggering a nervous system response, a fight, flight, freeze response. And the way that people typically respond to that fight, flight, freeze response, like this is uncomfortable. I don't like this. This sound is awful. Or they get scared of even the physical sensations they're having. Like, oh my gosh, this sound makes me sweaty. I hate being sweaty or I hate being angry. And so then they get more nervous about the sound, which strengthens that conditioned response. And that creates a cycle that makes it worse.
1: Exactly. That's exactly right. And with these responses that we get, we're getting both a physical response so somewhere in the body and a lot of times people can't tell you where that is but studies have shown well I wouldn't say a lot of times but sometimes patients will come in and I'll say okay where do you feel it in your body when this happens because just like with when you have a conditioned response or reflex you're not really thinking it through it's just right. happening just like you said with Pavlov's dogs yeah. so what happens is they they you know, the trigger sound goes off. They hear something that they don't like, a car engine say that's their trigger. Mm -hmm. They're not thinking about, oh, I hate that sound. They, if it's misophonia, they automatically get just this rage response. And they're also getting a Physical response somewhere in their body. And that you kind of have to address both of those things. So you have to address the reflex and come up with more conditioned responses, like through anchoring, different techniques, but also. Doing not exposure therapy, which is the worst thing that you can do, because that's what happens naturally. You're exposing yourself to the sound, whether you want to or not, and that's strengthening the sound. And some clinicians have, with meaning well, have tried to treat misophonia, phonophobia, hyperacus- hyperacusis with exposure therapy, just playing the sound and you'll get used to it. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly opposite of what you do. But what you Mm -hmm. can do is slowly listen to the sound before it sets off the reflex. Mm -hmm. So that is how we address the sort of biological response of the body to the trigger response. We work with sound therapy in a very safe an easy way. My goal with my patients is to never set off that reflex to never set off that. But if they do, I also need to address the, you know, the responses, the emotional responses that they're getting in their body as well. So in my program, we always do sound therapy, both passive sound therapy and active sound therapy to address the actual physical response in the brain that Mm -hmm. we have really no control over it. it just happens and then also we need to offer some ways to help the central nervous system get out of that fight-or-flight response or prevent that fight-or-flight response so a lot of your videos and podcasts talk about a lot of the things that i use in my clinic with my patients are a lot of the things that you've talked about in the past eft tapping uh, mm-hmm. progressive muscle relaxation. So we use a combination of those to treat these, and it takes a while. That, that is something that, that can be a big barrier to seeking treatment is that it can take time. Typically, I see my clients and patients for 12 weeks for a one hour per week session, but then they have to do work at home, at least 20 minutes per day, Mm. because it's the repetition and strengthening the auditory system and the central nervous system, or, you know, changing the response that takes time, that is not something where you can take a pill, and it goes away. And so that is another question I always ask when people come in, how committed are you? And a lot of times they're like, I will do anything. I I am so committed. You tell me what to do and I will do it because it's absolutely destroying their lives. Every once in a while, I'll get somebody that's like, I'm not willing to commit 20 minutes every day, plus mm-hmm. an hour session once a week to fix this. I, I'll live with it. And um, you know what? That is, that's that's everybody's choice. But I yeah. think it's really important to understand that that is something to consider that it is treatable. There are treatments that that work and it really can improve the quality of life, but it does take work. It does take time and it does take commitment.
0: Yeah. Yes. This is what I love about working with experts who understand these areas is because A lot of people, you just don't know what you don't know. So when you don't know the skills, you don't know the system, you don't know the process, you just feel like this problem is unsolvable and it's ruining your life and and it, it leads to a lot of discouragement. And so hearing, oh, there are skills you can learn. There's treatments that work. Like, let's do it. That makes me really excited and hopeful.
1: Yeah, that's a really big part. When my business partner and I opened our clinic, we wanted to specialize in things that... People have been told nothing could be done for. So my business partner specializes in auditory processing disorders. I specialize in sound sensitivities. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of of these people, they have seen a a physician or you know, some other well-meaning professional that has Mm -hmm. said, Well, there's really nothing out there for that. And or you just kind of have to get used to it, or you know, it's -hmm. in your head, or you're just 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 stress. And it's like, it is in your head because it is in your head. Like it's what's happening in your head. Yeah, so That doesn't mean that there's not a for it. And so many times we get people in our office or we have a virtual visit with them for the first time and they cry because they've been told that they're crazy, that there's nothing that can be done. And it's just absolutely not true. Yeah. And so we really... We love to be able to tell people that there is, there is help. There is hope. And there is actually a lot that can be done regardless of age or cognitive ability there, we can, we can do treatments for just about everyone. I've never had to turn somebody away based Mm. on cognitive ability, very specialized treatment, and we cater to, to where the person's
0: at in their life. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. I I love that. And, and even with this man who emailed me, I was like, I don't know who you see. So then I started researching it and learning more about it, but I did have a name for it. Like I knew like sound sensitivity in general and misophonia in general. And that started me looking at, well, maybe it's not misophonia. I'm not sure what's going on, but it's one of these sound sensitivities. And that, you know, led me down the path of finding you and your channel and, and everything's got a couple more things I'm quite curious about. I want to go back to like talking about treatment, but first, I want to ask what happens when people avoid the sound? What happens when people don't go places where that sound is or put on headphones to block the sound?
1: Yeah. That is such an excellent question. We talk about this all the time because especially with loudness hyperacusis or misophonia and and of well, I guess with all of them, but especially with hyper the loudness hyperacusis where sounds are just so loud and misophonia where you just can't handle listening to certain sounds and you may not be able to escape, maybe it's at work, maybe it's at school. And so What sounds the easiest is, and it sounds the most logical as well, I'm just going to put some headphones on my ear, some noise canceling headphones on my ear, or I'm not going to go out. I'm just going to stay home. And staying home and not going out, that has a whole nother level of disadvantage because then you have kind of this psychological stuff that can happen just from avoidance in general yeah. it's but depressing it's, as far and it now, causes more
0: anxiety right it's, it's depressing yeah,
1: it's isolating anxiety it causes depression mm-hmm. yeah it's very isolating we see the same thing with with people who have significant hearing loss that it, it's so hard to go out that they're like i'm just gonna stay home and then yeah. that isolation just does huge number. But to get back to those that wear headphones to block out the noise, it definitely gives you that instant relief. It's an easy thing for parents sometimes to turn to when they're like, well, my child, this, this, my child can't listen to these sounds. Here's some headphones. And then he or she is fine. The problem with that is that's auditory deprivation. And whenever you have auditory deprivation, then, when you take the the headphones off, if you now if you use them just intermittently, it's not necessarily going to cause a huge problem. So, if you go to Disneyland and you use them during the fireworks, or you go to a concert, or any you know, you should wear hearing protection if sounds are are loud enough that they could damage your hearing. Yeah. But we're talking about when it is like the go to, and I have patients who have worn headphones. From the second they get up in the morning until they go to bed at night for mm-hmm. nine years and mm. that makes the sound sensitivities worse so even though it sounds counterintuitive we want to stay away from sound dampening devices as much as possible and steer more towards enriching the environment with sounds that that you enjoy mm. and so that may mean while you're sleeping at night, and this is called passive sound therapy, but that might mean while you're sleeping at night, having some sound playing white noise, pink noise, red noise, brown noise. There are a lot of these different broadband frequency noises or nature sounds. They found that those two are the best sounds to listen to, to kind of strengthen that auditory system. And that's the first thing I recommend to all of my patients regardless of what type of hyperacusis or sound sensitivity they have we want to enrich the environment with sound you know teach the brain that sound is safe and that sound can be safe and then we can get more aggressive at working on the specific sound that is bothersome to the person yeah. but we actually want to enrich enrich the environment with sound that doesn't have to be loud. It's actually better if it's not loud. But we want to we want to get sound in there. So if you do find that you're turning to to noise canceling headphones, make sure you're streaming something at the mm. same time. And okay. so there's still some positive sound getting in. But try to stay away from that, getting into that habit. The same thing with wearing earplugs at night. It's if you have a spouse that snores and, and this was, this was the misophonia I struggled with um, uh-huh. was my snoring spouse. Oh, and man. a lot of times that you turn to is custom earplugs or just the foam earplugs, but you're even, even though it's nighttime, our bodies are meant, our, our brains are meant to hear sounds mm-hmm. during the nighttime, even. Mm-hmm. And so when you take that away, the brain kind of doesn't know what to do with that. And so then when you take them out, it can make the problem worse. Yeah. I hope that
0: answers your question. It, it does. And I think it's important because when, when people, like especially with anxiety, when people experience anxiety and their only goal is to make the anxiety go away, instead of to live a more full life that's healthier and happier, if their only goal is to make the anxiety go away, what they do is they avoid the situation that causes the anxiety. But what that does is that teaches your brain like, oh, that was a perceived threat, and then I escaped, and then I survived. And your brain's like, cool, the reason I survived is because I escaped. I'm going to make my human do that again to survive, because your brain's not, your brain's goal is not to make you happy. Your brain's goal is to keep you alive. So then your brain is like, I'm going to make my person more anxious more anxious about that situation. And that's going to make my human be more likely to avoid that situation, which is going to be more likely to make me survive. And so avoidance essentially increases your brain's sensitivity to triggers or anxiety. It makes you more anxious.
1: Yeah, that's a perfect way of stating it. And it's exactly, it's exactly that. The brain's goal is to to keep you alive, to keep for survival. And so... Mm -hmm. Just like you said, not to make you happy, necessarily. Right. Um, so so it definitely like that's such, you worded it so
0: well. It's so an important concept. And and so with hearing, when we tone down the sensory input we're getting, our brain heightens our hearing and makes us more sensitive, right?
1: Yeah. Right. Yeah, because our brain starts to think, oh, this is normal. This is safe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and so then... You take that away and everything is is just so much brighter. It's kind of like when you're in a like a dark room and you walk outside and it's really bright. It's like, oh my gosh, that's mm-hmm. so bright. Mm-hmm. And that same kind of tech that same kind of thing happens with your hearing when you take sounds away and then you give them back, it's even more overwhelming. It's even more, you're more sensitive to those sounds. And so while I do tell patients, parents, those that I work with that in certain circumstances for very, very short amounts of time, it's mm-hmm. okay to use sort of a sound dampening device, but we wanna keep that as limited as possible. We don't want something in the ear all day. We don't want something in the ear all night. Like that mm-hmm. nighttime's a perfect time to listen to some a fan turning a fan on you know and just having some sound that fades into the background the first couple nights you do it you're like okay i'm not used to this fan being on but then your brain adjusts to it and it actually can help you sleep better to have those sounds masking out the unimportant sounds that are that are also happening
0: That makes a lot of sense to me. I never used to have white noise. I never used to listen to things like that. My husband likes it. The babies like it. So we started using a white noise machine all the time. And now I I am used to it. And it it doesn't bother me. It used to kind of bother me. I couldn't really tune it out. Now I do. Yeah. For
1: some of the people I see, white noise is actually a trigger. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, and there are a lot of different, like, these colored noises, so to speak. And you can go on YouTube and they'll play for 10 hours. And you can get little... Hearing devices that will even put them into your ears so that they're just in there all the time. Some people don't like those noises, and it can yeah. even be a trigger for some people. And so, in those cases, I say use nature sounds because a lot of people who don't like those, that type of broadband sound, will like some kind of nature sound. And if I like they rain, don't like I like those, rain sounds oh sorry yep rain is a very popular one ocean sounds Mm -hmm. crickets some people really love that kind of and now in the forest type sound a lot of my patients surprisingly because this isn't me love like the on the sound machines the birds like (laughs) yeah that is not
0: my favorite either
1: <laughs> it's just it's so interesting because everybody is so different and I think that's why I like taking a very personalized approach to each person can be very beneficial and kind of gearing a treatment plan around what they like what they don't like so that it's not a difficult thing to do it's 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 just something that they have to do in order to the more consistent they are in their practices and, and doing these things, the faster things will get much, much better. Music is something that people use sometimes as a sound therapy treatment. It can be a little harder because the idea of passive sound therapy is that it's a sound that fades into the background that you don't, Mm -hmm. you know, you almost don't notice it unless you're like, is that playing? And then you're like, oh yeah, I hear it. With music, it's still better than nothing at all. So I put that as number three. If it's on a sound machine or if it's on an app where it's kind of a tune that just goes kind of in a circular way, then that's fine. That's perfect. But if you're listening to something like Baroque or whatever type of music you like, what happens is even when you're asleep or you're not paying attention, whenever something changes in that, your brain goes, Mm -hmm. (laughs) whoop. So even, even if you're not thinking about it or noticing it. And with passive sound therapy, we want it to be truly passive where your brain starts to block it out. And that's where really the magic is happening. But if there's nothing else that the, the person likes, then I say use some music, you know, mm-hmm. enrich your environment with some music or eating dinner while you're doing some homework with, you know, try to avoid quiet, try to avoid silence as much as possible.
0: Yeah, huh, that's that's really good to know. And it's interesting because as I as I as I've read more and learned more about sound sensitivity, like I mean, in some ways I am kind of a highly sensitive person. Like input is hard for me. Like a lot of input is hard for me to process. So having music on in the background is really hard for me to filter out. And my husband will like to play music, and I'll just I'll feel just a little bit like, okay. Okay. Cause I also got kids talking to me and I'm also thinking about the grocery list and the meal planning and I'm doing all these things in the music is like one more thing. And so, but I found that the more that I'm around it, the easier it is. Yeah. So,
1: well, yeah. and when you're starting out with somebody who, who is, does have, who is a highly sensitive person, you know, who has that personality trait or um, a child who, or adult who's just very overwhelmed and overstimulated, it's okay to take listening breaks. Mm -hmm. And especially in the beginning, it's not like we want to go from everything off to everything on. So for that patient who I mentioned before, who'd worn noise canceling headphones for nine years, it's been a very long and slow road to just working up to it. So I'm in no way suggesting that you just throw yourself into sound. If you've been, you know, in silence for a long time, that would be like going outside in to the sun. When you've been inside, you're going to get sunburn. It's, it's not going to be good. <laughs> like we've got to yeah. start the exposure kind of slow, very specific steps so that you're not doing damage to anything and making things worse.
0: Awesome. Like, yeah, yeah. That, I that makes, that makes sense. Remember. <laughs> no, it's great. It's great. And yeah, so so when it comes to treatment, and we call this in therapy, we call this the window of tolerance, right? In trauma therapy, right? There's the avoidance zone, which reinforces anxiety or PTSD. And there's the panic zone, which is where you're getting re-exposed maybe to your trauma or your anxieties in a way that just makes you more scared, more activated, that your nervous system pops into fight, flight, freeze mode, and you're like, ah! And then in between those is in therapy, we call this the window of tolerance, right? This is where, this is our room to work. This is our, and sometimes these windows are really small. Like that guy who had headphones on for nine years, his window of tolerance was probably quite small. Maybe it was only a few minutes a day that he could handle very, very, very gentle noise, right?
1: So that is exactly, that's exactly what I'm working with is this window of tolerance. And we just slowly, we figure out what that baseline is how much of that can you be exposed to at a soft level without triggering? Mm-hmm. And then we slowly over time, and we do combine it with pleasant activities so that the central nervous system is kind of already in a in a nice, comfortable state. We don't want you to do your at-home therapy, homework when you're tired or cranky, hungry. Like those mm-hmm. are the worst times because those are the times when your sound sensitivities are gonna be worse. If you've had a bad day, if you've been listening to um, somebody yell all day, like you're gonna be more sensitive because you're on more, you're on higher alert. And if you're hungry, if you didn't sleep all night, you might find yourself snapping at people more. And definitely sound sensitivities are worse when you're in those states. So we want to be in as pleasant of a state as we can be and work with that window of tolerance, whatever that is. And it's, it's different for everybody. So that's kind of the first appointment is figuring out what that window of tolerance is and then making adjustments each week until slowly we can, we can improve that window of tolerance. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, I want to make sure that we address treatment and what treatment looks like. So could you, and if you need a second to just collect your thoughts, that's fine. But could you describe treatment for hyperacusis in like uh, under two minutes? Like just kind of like a very overall picture of what treatment looks like and then we could talk a little bit more about the details of what passive noise therapy sounds like and what you don't use the term exposure but gradually introducing sounds right <laughs> looks like so yeah the,
1: the term i like neural okay. patterning so a really good comprehensive treatment program for any of the Types of sound sensitivity is going to include sound therapy that will have active sound therapy and passive sound therapy. It's going to include some type of cognitive behavioral therapy where you're starting to question your thoughts about how you feel about the sounds. And it's going to include techniques on how to regulate emotional responses to sounds. So a lot of those techniques we pull directly from research-based techniques that have shown to help regulate your nervous system's response to to triggering things, whatever that may be. And so you always want to have those three components in any type of really comprehensive program, because you need to address all of those things in order to be successful in the end. Awesome.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So give us a really quick overview of what passive and active sound therapy looks Mm -hmm. like, or what did you call it? Active and passive? Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, that's, that's right. So
1: sound therapy for hyperacusis, any of the types of hyperacusis should really include a form of passive sound therapy, which is enriching your environment with soft, pleasant sound for as much of the day and night as possible. We don't want it loud. We don't want to hurt your ears. And if you need to take a listening break, that's great. But that's passive sound therapy. The idea is that it's a sound that your brain learns to tune out.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay.
1: So at first you really notice it, but your brain learns it. It just fades into the background. So that's passive sound therapy.
0: So that would be something like Mm -hmm. white noise or rain sounds playing on a speaker in the background that you tune out.
1: Yep, exactly. So this will be a sound like white noise, pink noise, brown noise, red noise, any of those noises or nature sounds or even repetitive music. And if you hate all of those, then then some other type of music or sound that you enjoy that's just in the background at a soft level. I tell people I work with, it has to be either positive or neutral. It cannot be a negative sound. <laughs> it needs to okay. be, I mean, if you hate white noise, you do not want to use white noise as your passive sound therapy. You're doing the act the opposite of what we're trying to achieve. So you choose a sound that's that's neutral, sound that's positive, something that can fade into the background, and you try to avoid silence as much as possible. So that's passive sound therapy. Great. So active sound therapy, this is the 20 minutes of practice that I require my patients to do every day. And that's using that window. What did you call it?
0: Window of tolerance.
1: The window of, window of tolerance. Okay. So active sound therapy is using that window of tolerance for 20 minutes a day. A lot of times we start with the the triggering sound. I do... I have patients. I'll either create it for them myself or I'll have a loved one create it for them. I won't make them create it because we want an audio and visual of that sound because so many people, they have an, we think of it as an auditory response, but so many people, even if they can't hear the sound, but they can see someone Mm -hmm. making the sound, they have the same response. And so having a video... That where it's just repeated over and over again and again and I whenever I say this, people start to panic. I'm like, I'm not going to make you just sit and watch this from beginning to end. That's the last thing that I want to make you do. But we have somebody record that for them, or I have some for the most common ones, and I give them. And the idea of that is for 20 minutes, you're doing something that just brings you joy that you just love. That could be playing the piano. That could be jumping on the trampoline. It could be going for a walk, playing video games. And specifically for this one, I'm talking about misophonia. I should have specified that in the beginning, but this is really for misophonia. This is what active sound therapy looks like. But you're using that window of tolerance to just play, usually we start and you have it on your phone, this video and audio, and you push play and stop. Okay. It's just like one, one. <laughs> <laughs> and you do that every five minutes. So you're doing, you're doing something fun for 20 minutes. Every five minutes you turn it on, turn it off. And typically people that's not long enough hurt people to trigger.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: So we start so- can start with a three second exposure and then move then get back to another five minutes of doing what you love and then you know so so basically we're exposing that person to that sound without having that trigger response and the Mm -hmm. more you do that the more the brain learns okay i don't need to to trigger to this response i don't need to have that really stressful and hard thing now Active sound therapy is a little bit different for loudness hyperacusis, but it, it, it's kind of along the same lines. It's just
0: structured a little bit differently. Interesting. And I'm sure they can learn more about that if they work with you directly in one of your programs. So that's fascinating. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And could you briefly give us a couple of examples of types of thinking about sounds that maybe could be changed? Like I'm, I'm assuming that when you start doing some cognitive work, people might think, this sound is terrible, this sound is awful, this sound is unbearable. And you might change those thoughts. Is that accurate? Or maybe you you help me out here.
1: Yeah, so one of my favorite things to do, and I always get weird looks for doing this, but it, it really, really helps is I have a patient's name the sound sensitivity. So okay. give it a name. Like and Bob? So, yep. Bob. So it was so cute. I had a 17 year old and she said, Bruce, like just, it just came out. I was like, okay, hey, we're going to name that sound sensitivity. Cause we don't want, it's not you. It's not like something wrong with you. It's yeah. this trigger that's been created in this, this reflex that's been created in your mind. And we don't want that. And when we say my misophonia, you know, we're really telling our brain, oh, it's mine. I want it. I want to keep it forever. And we don't. Mm -hmm. We don't want that at all. So we named the misophonia and we talked to the misophonia. And so she chose Bruce and she said, I can see him in my mind. And I said, what does he look like? And she said, he's like this, like this tough Guide. He thinks he's protecting me, but he's actually not. And he's got this tattoo that says "Mom." <laughs> <She's just> like, <laughs> but what helps is that I think it, especially. It helps everybody, but especially with my pediatric patients. I think sometimes they feel like something is wrong with them for having these emotions or especially if it's misophonia and they get this anger response to people that they otherwise really, really love. They feel like that's something wrong with them. And so I have them talk to the misophonia. So we'll use Bruce for an example and we'll say whenever Bruce comes, we say, okay, Bruce is here. And then we talk to Bruce and we say, Thank you, Bruce. I know you're trying to keep me safe, but I'm fine. I'm I'm safe. You can go away. <laughs> and, <I'm fine. laughs> and that alone, as silly as that sounds, but that alone has helped people a, a lot. Now that's not necessarily it is thinking about the Misophonia in a different way because we're we're thinking about it as something outside of ourselves that that isn't like a like a moral failing in ourselves or a value that we're not up to with these thoughts that we can't really control. And so that has, that's one of the first things I do is, is we give the misophonia name. And then I refer to that misophonia every time I see the patient, I'm like, how's Bruce, you know, Mm -hmm. how, when did Bruce um this week and and when did you feel like he stayed away and that has been really good and families have really gotten on board too to be like oh is bruce here or the the person can be like hey everybody bruce is here i'm just gonna i need just a minute you know (laughs) So so it's kind of helpful in two different ways but and and really just looking at our responses and and Thinking about past experiences and how that has shaped our responses, you know, a lot of times our specific triggers are from some sort of traumatic event. Now, trauma, as you know, to one person can be, seem minor, but it's still traumatic to that person. Like that little kiddo that I saw whose trigger was, was mouth noises, he remembers Watching a movie with his family, and they saw some kissing, and he was like, Ooh, and then his family teased him. And you know, when you have Aww. that negative response and then something negative happening, and then you feel bad about yourself, that's really like grounds for creating a trigger. Like, Ooh, the brain's like, This is not a good sound because when this sound was here, I got made fun of. And you know, so it yeah. can be as little as that. I mean, trauma is trauma, but then it can be extreme, severe trauma. And I, I had a patient, I'm also a hypnotherapist. So I was able to hypnotize her and we did do regression and she regressed to childhood abuse and the sounds that were being made during the abuse were her actual triggers today. And so you don't need to know what caused them, but when you do and you can kind of think through that and reframe it in different ways it can be extremely helpful and extremely healing
0: yeah that's that's some really cool techniques that you use that's really interesting um yeah that's great thank you for sharing that and and naming naming (laughs) your misophonia is that's fun i like that (laughs) so
1: it is fun it is. They always look at me weird. Like every single, like everyone's yeah. like, what? But <laughs> so then they love it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, That's cool. Okay. So last thing is, do you have a favorite, like nervous system grounding technique? That's what I call them. Or like, you know, how, how to calm your body or nervous system down that you like to use?
1: Oh, that's such a hard question. Cause I have so many of them and I found, I find that every person responds differently to everyone. And what some, pers- what, what some people love, other people mm-hmm. are like, man, it's not for me.
0: That's really true. I've got this free grounding skills course, and there's about 20 different skills. And some people will email me and be like, look, I really hate this one skill, but I like these other skills. What's the matter with me? And I'm like, no, no, no. It's just like, I'm giving you 20 options. And just pick two or three that you yeah. like the most and use those.
1: So that's exactly what I do. And that's how I explain it to the people that I work with is, hey, listen, we're going to meet for at least 12 weeks and every week I'm going to give you a new technique. And I want you to practice that technique, whether you're practicing it when Bruce (laughs) is out or if you're practicing it, just when you're not feeling so great emotionally, you know, and you're struggling, but practice it so that you know it. And you'll know if you like it. Sometimes you'll teach a technique to someone and they're like, that's weird. I don't think I'm going to like yeah. that. And then it ends up being their favorite technique. And so <laughs> they, so to me, it's very important to use like a huge variety of techniques. And, and I have about 15 to 20 that I use. And so I, you know, I definitely can tell you what my personal favorites are, what works for me, but I think it's really important to not just have one because sometimes even if you have your favorite and you use that technique, maybe it's, maybe it's EFT tapping, you know, maybe you know a lot about that and you're using that. Maybe that usually works, but sometimes maybe you're in, in, a situation where it's not working. It's great to know that you have 10 other things that you can pull from. Mm. Um, Progressive muscle relaxation is a big one. Switching focus is one of my favorite ones to work with. Really challenging the mind, counting backwards from 100 by seven, kind of making that hard hard brain work, which Mm. I hate.
0: Yeah.
1: (laughs) I hate to do. But especially for a lot of my analytical patients, They like those where they're saying the ABCs backwards or they're coming up with all of the names that they can think of. So switching focus in that way. That's that's been a really good one for patients trying to think of uh, the havening. Havening is a really good one for patients as well. So Mm -hmm. we use that one for patients who who like it really works
0: well that's great. That's a great list. I, I think that'll give people who are listening some ideas of what treatment looks like and some options that they, they would learn if they worked with, uh, with you or another really qualified specialist in yeah. this. So that's awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here today. Real quick, where, where can people find you if they want to learn more about you, if they want to see your YouTube channel or learn more about your programs? Sure.
1: sure. So Soundimmunity.com is what the website is to find out a little bit more about treatment options. If So I'm physically located in the state of Utah, but I see people all over the world virtually as needed. And so for information on that, soundimmunity.com. My private practice that I own is called Little Heroes Pediatric Hearing Clinic. So our that is what our YouTube channel is right now is Little Heroes Pediatric Hearing Clinic. So it's a really long name, but cool. we think of all of our patients as little heroes, <laughs> big and small. So that's awesome. That's, that's where you can find them.
0: Cool. Okay. Thank you so much. Really appreciate you being here.
1: Thank you so much for asking me. I love talking about this because I've seen lives just changed over this. And so I'm very passionate about it. I love it when people reach out to me with questions. I am here to help. So thank you so much for asking me to be here.
0: Cool. Thanks, Lindsay. And I just want to say thank you so much to Dr. Tuba for taking the time to share her expertise with me today. And again, if you'd like to learn more about her work and her courses, you can find her at littleheroeshearingclinic.com. Thank you for listening and take care. I hope you enjoyed this episode and found something you can add to your daily routine that makes your life just a little bit better. If you want to learn more about topics like how to process tough emotions, how to change your brain, how to build better relationships, or support someone you know with a mental illness, then check out my classes at therapyinanutshell.com. And if you feel like these podcasts have been a benefit to you, please leave a rating so others can more easily find this content. Thank you so much and have a great day.